Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, it's Mark Graben. Welcome to the podcast. It's episode 433 for December 8th, 2021. Our guest today is Gerard Ibarra. He's the author of a new book, Good Decisions, Better Outcomes, a simple five-step process to help you make important and difficult decisions with confidence and clarity. So you'll learn more about Gerard in uh, in a minute. But if you want to learn more about him and his book and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 433 or look in the show notes, um, whatever podcast app you're listening to. As always, thanks for listening. And now on with the show. Well, hi, welcome to the podcast. Again, our guest today is Gerard Ibarra. He is an author, a business consultant, a speaker, and an entrepreneur. And I'm not back there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area all the time, but we're uh, both, uh, Gerard is also based out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So before I tell you more about him, uh, let me say, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Oh, very well. Thank you for having me on here, Mark. So Gerard and I are uh, both part of a, a LinkedIn group. It's not super active these days, a lean DFW group. Um, looking forward to being able to do more in person with, uh, with that group again. But um, we're going to be talking today. Gerard is author of uh, a recently released book titled Good Decisions, Better Outcomes. I'm going to hold it up here for those watching on YouTube. Good Decisions, Better Outcomes, a simple five-step process to help you make important and difficult decisions with confidence and clarity. So those are uh, an important topic and those are important goals. Um, Gerard has a a PhD from Southern Methodist University's Lyle School of Engineering with an emphasis in logistics systems engineering and operations research. Uh, He has taught graduate courses in logistics systems engineering at SMU as well as logistics, supply chain management, and the business courses at the University of Dallas's Graduate School of Management. Gerard has had executive roles in logistics companies. He's had his own consulting firm and was president and CEO of a company from 2008 to 2010. And he was also the CEO of Jaguar Logistics, the largest medical on-demand transport company in Texas until it was acquired in 2018. So um, maybe we can also, and we're going to talk about the book, but maybe since supply chain has been in the news so much recently, maybe we can, uh, we can talk about that at some point too, Gerard. Absolutely. All right. So jot that down. We'll come back to uh, that topic. So before we talk about the book and decision-making, you know, uh, you know, here on the podcast, I always like to get the origin story, if you will, from guests about you know, what was the context? What kind of company or environment was it where you first got introduced to continuous improvement practices? So that's a good question. I, uh, my undergraduate is in the electrical engineering. And when I graduated back in the days, I had the option of working at a engineering firm or go work at UPS. And because I'm a newly graduate, uh, you know, the UPS paid about 33% more so what do you think I did? What kind of decision do you think I made? <laughs> the one well, that fit yeah, me the you, you got to help pay off school. Yeah. There you go. So, so I went to I went to the work for United Parcel Service, and they put me in the industrial engineering department because of my math background, and that's where I began to learn all these uh, things about lean uh, processes, improvements, and our entire my most of my career there, about sixty uh, percent of it was in the engineering department. And when we first went there, or when we first started off as supervisors, after about six months to a year, that we would have a training class and they would review pretty much all the things that we'd been doing hands-on, but get a little bit more into the details. So by and large, what we do is we try to improve efficiencies through looking at how the job is set up, rearranging it, going through some analytics, and then trying to figure out what's the best way to set up these projects or these processes in the uh, warehouse or even at a customer's location. And ever since then, I've just been really intrigued by that, about the uh, process improvement and just have never left it since then. So that's why I've been in logistics and supply chain since then. Yeah. Is it 
somewhat urban legend, uh, the, the idea of UPS and the drivers um, supposedly never making left turns or it's a matter of minimizing left turns. Well, that yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I, uh, it's, that was mapped out by what we call the time study scheme. And mm-hmm. the most effective and the most, uh, I guess, the, the best, safest turns to do is take a right as opposed to a left. And when you map out things, you, you know, you're going to map them out as much as you can. But if you have to take a left turn, you'll have to take a left turn. But uh, yes, it's uh, you, you know, and I guess today I don't know how they do it. I think they have software now. But back in the days when I started and I'm aging myself and you had a team of individuals would take all these stops and they would just start mapping out on a map. What's the best way to do this path route? Yeah. And it's an interesting point you bring up. It's not just about the time spent waiting to make the left turn, but yeah, that safety element, there's so many Mm -hmm. more things that can go wrong making a a left-hand turn. Absolutely. Good to hear that there's a a safety argument behind that. So, um, so Gerard, I'm I'm curious to hear, you know, I I do like asking authors, you know, the story behind the book. And again, the title is good decisions, (laughs) better outcomes. Like what, what was the the spark of inspiration to uh, take that on as a project so what happened is i was working on my master's and a professor who was a who was in charge of the Lockheed uh joint strike fighters he had about five thousand engineers working for him he went through this process on how to make decisions and when he went through that in class i just said this is everybody in their mom should be doing this <laughs> and i was really uh, really amazed with it because there's a lot of decisions i had to make at ups and in, in my personal life as, as well but this process helped that so i used it to, at work i used it in my consulting practices but i really didn't use it personally until about uh, 2000 2001 or 2 uh, around that time i guess 2002 and i ended up making the decision trying to use that process there and to make a long story short, uh, I uh, did make a very effective decision. So I didn't use all that mm-hmm. analytics and things that I talk about, and I ended up making the decision. And years later, I come to think about, well, it's time to write that book, because I've been wanting to write this since the mid-90s. And then I did research for it. And when I did the research, I started learning more about how much of our emotions come into play. Mm-hmm. So when I did that, I said, okay, this is why I made the that I made this because I let my emotions take over. So in the book, I actually put in there a section about emotions so that when you make a decision, your emotions is part of the whole process. And ever since I made those changes, at least personally, that's worked out. But the framework itself is uh, useful for companies who have to make uh, decisions. And we're talking about efficiency. It's also a very efficient tool to get them from point A to point B from the, uh, from the, time they meet together to the time they make a decision. And what was that decision that you mentioned there? Was that the story that you use at the beginning of the book about buying a car? Was, yes, that, was that the decision? Yeah. Yes, that is. the So I, I, I bought the car based on three things. It's the price, the look, and the stereo system. Forget all of the other stuff, <laughs> you know, and I just went and bought it. And uh, a few months later, I realized what I got into when I had a tires. Say, well, why did you replace them so fast? Because the car I got had uh, sports tires, and so they're very low, uh, very low rubber, and they wear out as opposed to, they say about 30,000 miles, but they were wearing out about 20, 22, 23, and I had to do a lot of driving. So within the first three months, Hmm. I had to replace my tires. And then to make things worse, when I went to the place to replace them, they were saying, well, you're going to have to get performance tires, which were about, I don't know, 50% more. And I said, well, I can't do that. Well, the only way we can get you the regular tires is if you change your rims and buy the regular tires. I'm like, okay, great. So I ended up buying those performance tires again. So, but had I, and what it came down to in the end is it was more of my emotions drove me to that decision. But uh, yes, that's, uh, that's exactly what happened. And, and so the target audience for the book, is it, Mainly business leaders, even though there are applications of you know a decision making framework for decisions we make at home in our personal life. Yes. Yeah, so the the book, and that's a good question. The book is geared towards the decision makers, even uh, and uh, as well as those who are personal decisions that you have to make. Do I take this job? Do I purchase this house? Do I purchase this vehicle? 
So it's, it's geared to the decision maker, whether it's in business or in personal life. And it, it sounds like uh, the, the focus, um, when you talk about good decisions, there's, there's an element of efficiency. Like, let's not drag out the decision-making process or agonize over things, but then also aiming to be effective in yeah. terms of making the right decision. Can, can you share right. more about that's, those two pieces, effectiveness and efficiency? That's very astute of what you just pointed out. So I, I lectured last night at SMU, and I talked about that process right there. And it's about being efficient. So this process here, this framework will help you get from your from your start of the position of what you need to do to the end much quicker because it gives you a framework and it, it goes step by step. This is what you need to do. So you're very efficient at that. You don't you're not all over the place. And as far as being effective, making a better decision, at least through this framework, you'll see comparatively here's alternative A, B and C. And when you go through the framework, in the end, you'll have a total score and the alternative with the highest score based on all your requirements is the best decision for you or for the company. So it's efficient in the in the in the respect that it gets you from point A to point B. And it's effective in the sense that you have three alternatives. You're choosing the best one for the company. So I want to explore, um, you know, what, what you brought up, Gerard, about uh, emotion getting in, in, involved. I mean, none of us are Spock or uh, from Star Trek or, or Vulcan um, decision making. You know, it's, it's, it's never strictly rational, whether it's buying a car or hiring. Which person do we hire? Do we hire another person? Um, how, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on, I mean, you know, how much emotions influence? Do we need to um, just understand that? Do we try to eliminate the emotion or just realize that that's part of the equation? So just a couple of points. First of all, uh, Spock. Uh, my wife makes Spock look like a crying two-year-old when it comes to logic. <laughs> so that's how logical she is. Yeah. But in terms of emotions, the only way you make a decision without an emotion involved is if you're autistic. Everything that we do uh, from all the books I've read, all the research, uh, you're, you're, I guess you're keen, you're people who are gigantic in decision-making, Daniel Kahneman, uh, Rafia, uh, Hammond, uh, all these individuals talk about emotions being part of the decision-making process. And if you read some of the sales books, they also talk about emotions. Uh, Jeffrey Gittmore out of uh, Dallas, uh, who's out of the gentleman, uh, you can't teach a kid to ride a bicycle, the Sandler process, they talk about emotions. So what I did in my framework is to allow you to put your emotions in there and just to keep them in check. Mm. So you can't get rid of them, but at least it helps you put them in check. And that's what the uh, process does for you. So, yeah, you, you got to have emotions. Otherwise, you're just not a human or autistic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so the methodology. Um, so if you could share, you know, there'll be a lot more depth and detail in the book, of course. But so if you could kind of walk us through the overview of this methodology, and this is the, the P2 mode. Oh, the P2 mode. Me methodology, or is, yes. is that? Mm -hmm. Yes. So a P2 mode is an acronym, uh, and it starts, it, it, it stands for parts, processes, maintenance costs, operational costs, disposal, and E for so this, uh, this acronym that I put together comes from years of uh, consulting and education and application. And what I do is I use that acronym, which is a cookie cutter, to help you think in totality. So when you're going to make a decision about whether you're going to start a new service, you're going to move the organization, you're going to hire someone. If you go through those acronyms, you're going to be able to make a better decision for the totality or for the benefit of the company. And... One of the things that I think that go on speaking, I someone says, well, "What's the one thing you want us to take away?" You know, what's what is that one little nugget? And I always talk about uh, your exit strategy, which is your disposal. Mm -hmm. When you're a uh, alternative, no matter what it is, you got to think about what happens at the end. What happens at the end of it's no longer viable, or I'm going to move on to something else. And that's very important because most of the times we think about today and tomorrow, but we don't think 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the uh, road. So the P2 mode is a cookie cutter to help you with the what I call the three-tier philosophy, which is 
think critically, think big picture, and think of an exit strategy. So the P2 mode, again, is just that cookie cutter to help you think in those terms. So this, this framework and this decision-making process could be used to answer, it seems like, a range of questions of, should I buy, I'm going to come back to cars, should I buy a new vehicle? Like comparing what I have versus what I might need or might want. Then there's maybe a level of, you know, which vehicle should I buy? And yes. let's say if someone's grappling with the idea of, you know, should I buy an electric vehicle? Any Absolutely. of those questions could be handled through this oh, framework. Yeah. yeah. So the framework, what's good about it, uh, you, you know, again, it goes back to efficiency. You could go down a rabbit hole and just do analysis paralysis and you'll never come up with a decision. And it's going to be six months late and you're still trying to decide what car to buy. And, you know, some new models come out and there you go through the whole process again. Oh, this one just came out. So this framework is a quantitative process that allows you to put in alternative A, electric, alternative B, use, alternative C, brand new truck, alternative D, maybe a brand new four passenger. And when you go through the process, you'll have what I call a base score. This is your minimum acceptable requirement. And then you have scores for everything else. If the scores for all the alternatives are less than your base, that means keep with what you have. Don't put any more time into it and maybe do it again next year. Because, um, I mean, I think of yeah, last time we got a new vehicle was uh, well, just a little over two years ago. And, you know, there's questions. Uh, oh, there, there's so many questions and decisions to make. Um, buy versus lease, um, you know, which, which brand or maker model, yeah. or even then within narrowing that down, you know, unless you're ordering something specific from, from the factory, you may have, let's say, you know, five choices in inventory, none of which are exactly what you want, <laughs> <laughs> but you kind of, you know, I've, I've built, I, my wife and I, you know, she's an engineer also, we, we've built a spreadsheet, at least, you know, laying out options and, you know, short of doing some sort of operations research optimization oh, yeah. <laughs> function, you know, we're, we're trying to weigh pros and cons, but I, I can't say that was a formal decision-making process. That was sort of winging it with data. So, you know, that's a very good point. Uh, when we talk about getting lost in all the data and really uh, not being efficient, the thing that I have in the framework, the is that you take everything that's important to you and to your wife, and then you try to uh, just come up in terms of a totality, what's the most important thing? If you list out 25, let's say 50 items, if you had to rank those items into a 100%, how does that come out? And then from that, you take the ones that are your top ones, the 80%, the Pareto analysis, you know, what's the top 80%? And those are the ones that you focus on. The other 20% is what I call white noise. And that's just, again, that's that's doing analysis from paralysis. It might have not much of an effect on your overall decision. So that's where this framework starts. It's understanding in totality and understanding the decision you're going to make, how, to, how important is every part or aspect of that decision, electric, cost, um, you know, how often are you going to use it? What are you going to do at the end of it? Are you going to sell it to your, you know, resell it back, give it to your kids or whatever the case may be. So one other um, decision that a lot of people might be going through these days is, um, you know, related to vaccination. Mm. And for me, the decision point here is um, I, I got the J&J &J vaccine back in March. I'll admit, you know, I didn't go through a rigorous decision-making model to decide uh, which vaccine, you know, I think I did the J&J &J vaccine because it was just one and done. Not that I couldn't have gotten myself back for a second dose, but, you know, at the time they were saying they were, you know, ah, they're all good. Mm. So I, I, I made this decision of what I thought was the shorter time to uh, antibodies, but now I've got this decision of, uh, I mean, I have decided to get, the booster shot that's being recommended, but now there's this, these alternatives opened up of like, you could get the J&J &J again, or I could get the Moderna as a different booster or the Pfizer as a different booster. I mean, how, how would you use this P2 mode model 
on a, a decision like that? When you look at the parts of the acronym and, and, and how that thought process went. Okay, so uh, that's a two-part answer. So first, when you were talking about the, uh, the vaccines, I have something that I call an inefficient decision. And what that means is you either don't have all the data available mm -hmm. or you have conflicting data, mm -hmm. but you have to make a decision based on what you have available. And it's no fault of yours, the decision you make, it's only because of what's available to you. Life happens. And I talked about the last night, you use this model and framework You say, well, I should have gone with A instead of C or D or B. Well, no, the reason you went with A is because of everything that was in front of you, mm -hmm. but you had no idea what's happening on the world economy and these things just happen. So in terms of the P2 mode, what you would do is, and again, the P2 mode is uh, for those difficult decisions. It's not for, you know, what beer am I going to have or am I going to sell with pepperoni or not, <laughs> but it's for those difficult decisions. So the P, the first P is the parts. Okay, what kind of parts are going to go into this shot? You know, you might do a little research saying it has this type of uh, antibiotics in there, this type of medication, this type of whatever it might be. And you have to kind of look at that and see, are you allergic to any of those? That would be parts. The process would be, okay, if I do the one shot, like you said, that was part of my decision-making process too. You know, do I go once or do I go twice? But then my wife did a little bit more research and she pointed out some things that made me go with the two shots. Mm -hmm. But the process is how much time are you going to take for the decision you're making? How much does it affect you in your life, in your processes? This, so so yeah. it's just a, yeah, I mean, part of the thought process then is which day to, to get the shot. Yes. And I know, you know, after I had the J&J shot, I had a fever for about four hours the next day. Uh, my wife got the Moderna and I'm leaning... I've got the Moderna schedule, but I'd, I'd still like to go through the rest of the um, decision-making framework with you. But, um, you know, I could have a sore arm that probably wouldn't get in the way of anything. If I were feeling uh, a little under the weather next day, like I've scheduled it on a day where the next day would be a little more forgiving to having a day's worth of side effects as, as sometimes happens. There you go. That's exactly it. That's the process. Mm -hmm. How much time? Exactly. Very right on point. Okay. The uh, remaining four is maintenance costs. So in this case, I believe they're all free. So you don't have to worry about any maintenance costs, except, you know, in terms of the process, if you're going to be out for four or six hours, you're incurring some costs one way or the other, whether it's time being lost or whatever, you know, having to go to the restroom often or taking other pills and operational costs as well. How much does it cost me to do this? And the reason I separate maintenance and operations costs, in some organizations, they're very much well aligned. But the reason I put maintenance and operation costs for us, the individuals, is to make sure we think about everything that goes into terms of a cost. If all I said was maintenance costs, then you may not be jolted with operational costs and vice versa. So that's the M and the O in the P2 mode. And then the last two, which is disposal, you know, what happens after I take this vaccine? What happens uh, four, five months later, or even a year later? You got to think about that. And again, it goes back to how much information you have that's available to you. Mm -hmm. But the point there is you should always be thinking about your exit strategy. If something goes wrong, you know, God forbid something goes wrong, am I ready for that, uh, the next step? And the last one's emotions. Uh, you know, emotions place a lot into it. Uh, some individual might want to do a Pfizer. Someone might want to do something else only because of what the company who's providing these injections stands for. That's your emotions playing into place. Mm -hmm. Or you prefer uh, you know, CVS over Walgreens and one of them happens to have both of them. The other one does not. Mm -hmm. And going back to process, I forgot this one. This was another thing that went into my decision-making process. The uh, one shot for me was about 20 miles away, mm -hmm. the two shots was a mile away. So in terms of process, so, yeah. and that's, that's how you would use the P2 mode. But again, it's for those uh, difficult decisions, uh, purchasing the vehicle, taking a new job, uh, hiring an employee. Uh, once you get very acclimated with this, you could use the P2 mode for other decisions, just to run it through your head and say, okay, I always got to be thinking about my exit strategy. 
And I, one thing I think is interesting about having a decision making framework is that it's not always going to lead to the same answer for each person no. because of these different variables. For example, how, how long is somebody willing to drive? Uh, how much do they value one and done versus going back again uh, weeks later? And then, you know, there, there could be emotions. There's, um, you know, fear, uncertainty and doubt where some people, this, this was not really part of the thought process for me, but I would understand if some people said, would say, well, you know, the J&J vaccine is more traditional, if you will, vaccine technology. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mRNA uh, vaccines from Pfizer and Moderna to some people might be new or you know, less yeah. certain or less proven. Um, and, and, and so there, you know, I, I think it goes to show there are different decisions that are right, given the circumstances and what needs and wants are, what, mm-hmm. what people value and, um, you know, just kind of looking at, yeah, I think it's interesting to think of decision-making as a process. Different people have different inputs, which might lead to a different output of that decision-making. Oh, absolutely. You know, and it's a very good point again, that you bring up in the, uh, in the book, I talk about this decision is for you and for your company. It's not for anybody else. So when someone says, well, you should have gotten this vehicle or you should have moved over there. Well, yeah, that's fine for you, but not for me. I went through my analysis and what's best for me and for my company is X, not Y or Z. Mm-hmm. So, yes, it's it's very personal. Yeah. I mean, I think back to you know the, the vehicle decision. Um, for for getting an SUV, and and somebody might say, oh, you know, Mark, you should you should have gotten the one with the third row seating. I'm like, I cannot <laughs> think of a situation where my wife and I would need that third row. So for us, that decision and and those needs and wants are are, are different than somebody else who would use that third row. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, very very good point. So maybe, you know, uh, if you can, you know, let's explore that a little bit more. I know in the book, you kind of lay out decision-making criteria, um, needs versus wants. How, how does that influence your decision-making, Gerard? So needs, wants, and emotions. It's what I call the trifecta influencers, and it has a very big part in your decision-making process. So you have to first recognize a need versus a want. A need is something that's a requirement. A need is something that is a must have. And the very simplest thing for me to associate a need with is you need water to live. Mm-hmm. You need that to sustain yourself. A want, on the other hand, is something you desire. And a want could be, I want another polo shirt. You have 40, three of them are the same color. The one that you're looking at is the same color, but it has a different stitch somewhere else. And you don't even need it. That's more of a want and a desire. But within those two, I have what I call an inefficient need. And you say, what do you mean? Not an an inefficient want. What do you mean by that? Well, let's go back to the water example. You're thirsty and you you have to have water, but you have to have the water from that bottle with that nice pretty picture on it. Nothing else will do. Well, yeah, you need water and you could convince yourself, yeah, I need water. So I'm going to drink this. But that's very inefficient. The most efficient thing to do is if you lift the house or the apartment, just get water from the faucet. Mm-hmm. Cheap. It's there. Recycling. And that's what you do. So that's those are the difference, uh, I guess, between a inefficient one versus just a pure one. And the last thing is the emotions. Your emotions is what creates your wants. If you didn't have emotions, you really wouldn't have any wants. But it's your emotions that tell you, you know, Gerard, I really want to be able to dunk the ball from halfway through the court. So I'm going to go buy those sneakers with the check marks on there because I know once I have those on there, I'm going to feel I could fly through the air. So those are my emotions talking to me. And that's where critical thinking, by the way, which is the why for my book, is where you have to really zone in and say, why am I things? And in marketing, I don't want to get off the market here, but it, it works very well if you know how to do it. When you look at the commercial for those sneakers, they're creating a story for you. They're not selling sneakers. They're selling an adventure. They're selling you the fact that you could dunk the ball halfway through the court. So that's where your ones, uh, your emotions come into play. The stronger your emotions are, 
the more your ones are going to be, the less efficient you're going to be in making decisions. So you have to be able to recognize whether it's a want or a need and how much your emotions are playing into your wants. Yeah. For someone like me, there's no shoe in the world that would help me <laughs> dunk a basketball on a 10 foot rim. Anyway. <laughs> I mean, but, um, but yeah, I mean, think through wants and needs, um, you know, in pandemic times, especially I'm, uh, guilty to a fault of, uh, focusing on to me, a want of comfortable shoes. Like I really like these shoes from a, a company, all birds. They're kind of like a sock with a, a soul on oh, the bottom, okay. you know, they're uh, very comfortable. But then again, uh, if, if it's raining and you need a waterproof <laughs> shoe, that is not the shoe to yeah. wear. Right. So it's a, it's a good weather shoe. And then there's, you know, my, my wife's uh, sort of want or a need. She, she doesn't think those are really the most attractive shoes. So there, there, there's her need and want to keep in mind of like, well, how's her husband look? <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't care about the comfort for me as much, maybe. Well, you know, it's funny you say that. Uh, So my decision making with my wife is whatever she wants. That's (laughs) it. (laughs) Just I try to follow that. I try to follow that, but I push back on the shoes because they're because they're trendy. They're they're Silicon Valley trendy. They're not, you know, high fashion trendy, but. But it's one of your emotions. It's your wants. And that's okay. So it's okay to, we're humans. If you don't satisfy yourself emotionally, you're not going to be hidden in all your cylinders. Mm -hmm. So if wearing those shoes or wearing a white uh, shirt with a tie, if that makes you feel great, Mm -hmm. makes you perform better then by all means. Mm -hmm. So I'm not taking, I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying you've got to recognize how much of an impact it has in your decision-making process. So, um, you know, there are some decisions that would be strictly individual. There are some decisions that you're making together with your spouse, whether that's buying a car or uh, what shoes to wear. You'd think maybe that's a trivial decision, but there there are joint decisions. And then in workplaces, there may be organizational decisions or team decisions. How how does a framework like this facilitate group decision making? So... Another great question. Uh, so the in terms of a business organization, the book is the outline. The reason I say the book is good for a decision maker, like the CEO, the business owner, or yourself, whether you're going to purchase a house or a vehicle, is because you pretty much have the total authority. But if you're in an organization, you have finance, you have HR, operations, logistics, marketing, sales, uh, legal, all everybody has some kind of input. So in this process, in what I showed last night was you have to take everybody's input and kind of put it all together, let them go and try to identify what's the most important thing for them, then come back again together and then take everybody's list and rank them from the top to the bottom, get rid of the top, uh, the bottom 20% and then just stay with the top. One, two things it does for you. One is you get better insight into a decision for the company because you have HR involved, logistics operations. They put their two cents in there. But on the flip side, or more so, should I say, everybody feels like they were part of the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And that goes a long way. When someone says uh, we should have made this decision and they were not involved, they're going to be your biggest uh, people who are going to criticize you. But when everybody's involved, it's like, okay, well, I was part of the process and I can't really say much. So that's how it works with an organization. And uh, there's a different steps for that. It's a little bit different, but it's uh, that's where the efficiency really comes in. So it's, I, I believe it was uh, the consulting firm uh, McKinsey. They did a survey, 2000 employees nationwide, mid managers, not nationwide, worldwide. And what they've concluded is that, the organization of a average Fortune 500 company loses $250 million a year in the decision-making process. Mm. Doesn't matter if they make the right decision or wrong, just talking about the whole process, opportunity costs. So if they had a framework like this, it would make things a lot more efficient. And one of the things I talked about just yesterday was, here's an organization, you have the requirements, you say, here's the goal, only so much amount is sent out to business through the departments. 
someone does the analysis, they come back, it's the wrong analysis, you meet again, you start all over and you just have this cycle that keeps on going. And after three or four or five months, you just don't do it anymore. And you go on to another decision that has to be made. Mm-hmm. So we talk about decisions that have to be made and in your role as a consultant or a coach. Um, I'm, I'm curious in your work, how often do you get brought in to, to do training, to teach frameworks versus being brought in to help consult on a particular big decision? So, so I've done a couple of uh, big decisions here. The most recent one was for an investor who was putting $4 million up to start a new, uh, a new company. And the $4 million was for the uh, brick and mortar. And what uh, we did is he put a team together and I helped him through just the decision-making process in terms of where to, where to locate the organization. But the problem that we incurred, and I had to tell him this afterwards, is it's something that's called an anchoring trap. And the anchoring trap in the business world is where someone kind of puts together the question in such a way that their emotions or their uh, criteria is in there. So he said, let's go ahead and look at the, the four major cities in Texas, Austin, San Antonio, Houston, and Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth. And I'm really, I, I like Houston because of A, B, C, and D. But you guys go out there and you just tell me what's best for me. Well, guess what everybody was thinking at that point? Right. Exactly. Houston. So, yeah. Uh, so yes, that's that's one example. Or, or in that case there, it was even maybe framed or anchored in one of the four major cities. When the, if you opened it up, even within Texas, maybe for some different reasons, uh, you know, smaller town, West Texas, like why, why not Lubbock? You know, maybe, maybe yeah. Lubbock would be the right choice, but if you framed it around those four cities, now maybe there were wants or needs of, let's say if it's a business decision where an executive says, you know, I, I'm only going to locate the business in one of the big cities because that's where I want to be. Well, that, that's, a, that's, fine. That, that's a want and that criteria could be known, but I guess it does create the risk of if, if what, what I hear you saying is if you're anchoring it too strongly, you may end up making uh, a bad, uh, suboptimal decision. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, it's very common in the business world. The anchor, it's uh, someone frames it a certain way and then that's what you end up trying to do. So, yeah. Uh, the other one is uh, it's, it's more for an institution. And the, the biggest thing there is the, uh, the executive VP had a $300 million budget and he was saying that I've got these three VPs and I need to disperse this $300 million. And he says, they're very nice people, but they will cut your throat in a second. Just to get my position and take all the money. So what I did in this case was I went through the process in terms of thinking totality, what's best for the institution, not what's best for a department A, B or C. And within the afternoon, about three or four hours, we had all the money dispersed and everybody agreed, no matter how much they keyed it, they all knew in the end that this was the best decision for the institution. So, so I do, I do some of the decision-making right now, most of it's in training where I go in there and I do a two day workshop and I do a couple of day follow-ups in three months and a six month. So one other question I wanted to ask you about um, decisions kind of connects to um, one of my other podcast series called My Favorite Mistake. And and, <laughs> and maybe we could do a separate episode and have a different discussion framed around that where guests. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I was going to say I have so many mistakes. Uh, we, we can tear it into a complete show. <laughs> well, that's why I do ask people to think of a, at least a favorite mistake, even if it's not the, the favorite okay. mistake. I, I can do but, that. But, um, you know, I think, um, you know, because the part of the mindset around the podcast is realizing that we all make mistakes. We're doing the best we can. We're making the best decisions we can at, at the time. So the podcast isn't about, you know, proverbially beating people up or chastising them from making mistakes. But, you know, a, a decision, I've had some guests recently who, let's say, for example, talked about the decision to leave a job or the decision to not leave a job. They're making a decision at a point in time or maybe even continually based on the information they have at the time. And then at some point, could be days or weeks or months or years later, 
that decision that seemed like a good decision somehow reveals itself as a mistake. So I, I'm, I'm curious like what your reflections are on decisions that turn out to be mistakes. And I think you alluded a little bit earlier, how much of that is due to maybe a bad decision-making process and how much of it is just, well, we, we didn't have the right information. Yeah. Didn't have enough information or had information that was maybe just false. Right. Yeah. That's uh yeah. And th- that goes to the inefficient decisions. Uh, you made a decision based on all the data you had or data you didn't have and conflicting data that you had. So yes, those are hard. Yeah. I mean, what, what, what are your thoughts? I mean, if you think back to um, at least one example, maybe you know, we can talk about a different one in an episode of my favorite mistake, um, a, a mistake you've made, Gerard. And how, how do you reflect on that and think of what you would do given the chance to make a decision so, like that differently? So, so for me, so I'm going to go back to my vehicle example. I, I think had I really understood my emotions and how much they played into the whole process, I would have probably been a little bit more cautious in the vehicle I chose uh, you know, that's all part of the process. And then if I really look a little bit deeper into this, that mistake is also tied to the organization that I used to work for. And I should have left the organization in January. And if I had done that, then I don't believe I would have been in the predicament I would have been in with the vehicle. So it gets a little bit deeper in there. So if I had to go back, I just wish I would have left the organization in January as opposed to June, and I wouldn't have all these problems with the vehicle. Even if I purchased the vehicle, I wouldn't be putting that many miles on it. I wouldn't have to have that much maintenance on it because of all the driving I was doing. I had uh, my headlight cracked, and the, the, I'm like, are you serious? This is how much it costs to get this replaced? And this was back in 2003, and it was something like three, $400. So, yeah, if I reflect back on that, I should have left sooner than later. And that would have uh, really prevented a lot of these things uh, as far as my vehicle yeah. and heartache as, as well. Yeah. So that comes down to, again, both the rational and the emotional. Like you yeah. can add up the dollars in a rational way. And then there's the emotion of, you know, I think of like decisions I've made um, in, in the past. I'm on my third. MacBook Pro in congratulations now. Well, it's it's not really so much a congratulations because um, the first the first one I got because the old one was dying. The board it would have cost too much to repair the board or replace the board. It, the the laptop was basically totaled to use car language. So I got a new laptop, and um, there were a lot of things I didn't like about it, but I needed one that worked. And then that laptop started giving me a lot of problems after six months. And it was partly rational. Like I'm wasting time because this laptop reboots itself when it's supposed to be just waking up from sleep mode. And there were all these different problems. I was putting a lot of time in the troubleshooting, which is maybe more of like the rational, the maintenance. I don't know if that's operational or maintenance cost, but there was cost. And then there was a motion where I was uh, like, it, it, and it was an emotional reaction to say, well, I just want to throw this laptop out the window. Now, like, clearly <laughs> I wasn't going to do that. I'm not that rash. But um, but now, you know, the, the Mac, uh, Apple announced their their new laptops and, uh, you know, the, they've brought back the HU, I'm sorry, I'm getting into a rat hole lens, but for example, they've brought back the HDMI port. So, and I think when I start going back on the road again, I'm like, I don't want to have all these adapters. I just want to plug into the HDMI port. So hopefully this laptop will last me for years instead of months, even with generous trade-ins. But, you know, I, I, I can see where even a decision like that of should I upgrade the MacBook? Should I upgrade it now? There's, there are both rational and emotional elements. There are wants and there are needs. Yeah. Involved. So I, I miss I misheard what you said. I thought you were on your third math book. No, no, math book. <laughs> I got it now. <laughs> Which is why I said congratulations. Uh, well. So I had to kind of go back and say, yeah. So you know, uh the only thing I would say at this point is think about your exit strategy. And you've made some very good points is how much more time am I going to spend on this? How much more time am I going to have to reboot? Or whatever the case may be. And I'm going through the same process myself. Uh, the laptop that I have, when you start up in the morning, it has this really 
really gnarly sound. You could hear the motor and it's going. It's never good. They're never good, but it's still here and it's been going on for four months. And I'm now at that point. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, sometimes it's hard. Yeah. But so, yeah, I didn't have your framework uh, at hand, but I thought thinking back to the decision I made four or five months ago to because Apple wouldn't replace the laptop. I had to trade it in for a new one. So there was a bit of a financial hit, but I weighed that against the hit I was taking in time and frustration. But to your point, I had an exit strategy because I knew the rumors that Apple was going to be announcing new laptops in probably four or five months. And I could have waited, but I decided not to wait. But part of the disposal or the exit strategy was, again, knowing like the resale value of Apple MacBooks is really high. So I'm going to start doing the math of like, well, it's not a $1,500 purchase decision. I'm basically leasing it for $100 a month until I can replace it with this one that meets some of the needs better. So um, that's a very good process there that you went through there. Yeah, that's good. Uh, the uh, most recent one that I did personally for for our, my, myself for for my wife was uh, foundation work. We had foundation work done. It's uh, it was like twelve to fifteen thousand dollars. So yeah, I went through the process, and uh, in the end, and th- this is what I learned from the process. I guess it, it, there are things you know, things you know that you don't know, and things you know that you don't know, or things you don't know that you don't know. And when I went through this process, what I learned was. When the companies came out and gave bids, I had three and they all gave me different bids because they had different beams put in. Well, what I learned was that whoever we went with is going to have to hire a structural engineer based by city ordinance. And whatever the structural engineer says has to be done, that's what they have to do. Had I And they, I would still get charged for that, by the way. Had I known that, I would have just gotten an engineer come out here and then said, here's what I need done. Give me a bid. Company A, B and C. So So that was a helpful, it was helpful to have a framework. It was helpful to have a framework. And uh, there are things that you learn through the process in the end that you didn't know. And that's, that's, that's really hard. I guess sometimes you, you make a decision and there are things you just don't know. And you don't even know who to go to, to ask, is this something that I should look at? So yeah, those, those are difficult things to do sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe a final question for you here, uh, Gerard. And again, our guest is uh, Gerard Ibarra. Uh, His book is Good Decisions, Better Outcomes. It's available now and and, and, uh, uh, hope you'll uh, take a look at it and and buy it and read it. So this might be um, sort of the the graduate level capstone question. Oh my gosh. For the episode, (laughs) but you've got a PhD. So I I know you're you're up for it and you have a lot of experience in um, the realm of logistics. This will be uh, a very intentionally open-ended question. So I know you'll have, you know, you can choose to say whatever you think would be um, helpful in response to it. But, you know, there's so much in the news about supply chain problems with global supply chain. Um, factories in China having to shut down because of electricity shortages or environmental factors, problems getting ships into the port, lack of containers, lack of drivers, lack of trucks. Like there are so many different problems throughout the supply chain. Um, I'm, I'm just curious, like what what what's your take on the situation, and what types of decisions could executives or should they be making with, with a framework like the one that's in your So this that's very very huge uh, because the supply chain is just not here in the U.S. Uh, we're talking global country. We're talking global here, yeah. and the first part of this whole mess, or I guess situation, is. Everybody has to agree that there's a problem and that they all have to work together. And that's that's where the difficulty might come in. And here in the U.S., if we wanted to look at this, and unfortunately, we may have to get uh, uh, some help, maybe from the CEOs themselves, maybe some regulations, something to help us push through and get over what we're doing through here. And, you know, there's uh, the shortage of drivers, but why is there a shortage of drivers? Uh, you know, is it the uh, fuel prices? Is it is it a uh, government uh, trying to reduce things, slow down things? Is it uh, there's just a whole slew of things? Is it just the process itself that's lacking? 
you know, you talked about the uh, out at the in China or I guess overseas, you have electricity shortages. Well, once they come back on, you know, you have to catch up. So you're going to have to use more people. And now you're going to flood the U.S. You don't have enough people. So you can bring more people. And so it's just a it's just a very huge problem. And it requires it requires a systematic or systems approach to even begin to look at the solution. Yeah, and it seems like there's no particular single bullet because no. there are decisions that were made in some cases two decades ago about yeah. offshoring and sourcing to China, things that used to be manufactured here. Yeah, that, that goes back to the exit strategy. And, mm-hmm. and again, it goes back to critical thinking, which is, again, the why for me is if, if anything that anybody learns from this podcast, this recording is just to think a little bit more critical. And it seems like there's a need, and I'm, I'm curious how this fits into the frameworks and, and, and what you write about in the book. There, there are known factors that we can make decisions off of, and then there are the unknowns and, and risks. And how much does a framework for risk analysis enter into good decision-making? So the framework itself is pretty straightforward. But in a, it's a five, five steps within the framework and within the mathematical part, the step two and three, that's where you would do your, that's where you do some of your analysis, Monte Carlo, risk analysis, Bayesian, Markov chains, and that's where you would do it to try to assess what's going on. But as far as the unknowns, the best thing you could do to combat that is if you're looking at, say, logistics and supply chain and you're in marketing and you're trying to uh, create a messaging, it might be good to talk to the people in operations so that you don't create a message that cannot be delivered. And they may know things that are taking place that you don't know of. So that collaboration is very important. Otherwise you might miss the mark. Well, it seems like uh, your book doesn't miss the mark. Um, I've been able to read a little bit of it and I jumped through to some of the framework and I'm looking forward to to going back in and and filling the rest of the pieces. Uh, Again, the book is Good Decisions, Better Outcomes, a simple five-step process to help you make important and difficult decisions with confidence and clarity. So the author, again, is our our guest here today, Gerard Ibarra. Uh, Gerard, thank you so much for being a guest. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me on here. Thank you. Congratulations again on the uh, release. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.